Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The UN Climate Conference is taking place this week in Katowice, Poland. Filmmaker Sir David Attenborough stirred people up on the first day of the conference. Right now, we're facing a man-made disaster of global scale. Our greatest threat in thousands of years, climate change. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. The United Nations provides a unique platform that can unite the whole world. And as the Paris Agreement proved, together we can make real change happen. Let's talk about the effort to make real change happen at the U.N. Climate Conference. Joining me from Poland is Mariana Panuccio-Feldman, and she's Senior Director of International Climate Cooperation at the World Wildlife Fund. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mariana. Thank you. And also with us is Alden Meyer, Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, thank, Alden's been going to U.N. conferences since 1990. Thanks a lot for joining us again, Alden Meyer. Sure, sure. Glad, glad to be with you. Um, I wanted to get your feelings about the place where this is happening. Uh, Panuncio, uh, Katowice, Poland, is a place where um, we've got a lot of coal. This is coal country in Poland. And it sounds like it's all over the conference, and then Poland's made an effort to put it all over the conference. Um, Mariana, uh, what is it like there? What, can, you exp- can you describe the coal situation there? Yes. Um, so I think uh, the Polish presidency has made it very clear um, that um, they are a coal-producing region. They, um, uh, they are a um, coal-producing country. They have selected the Silesian region to host um, uh, the talks, which is a key producing region for coal in the country. You can see it as you come f- from the airport. You can see um, uh, producing, uh, you know, production by uh, by the side of the road. Um, and here at the talks, we are um, the building where we are is sitting atop an old uh, coal mine. Um, the building uh, reflects the colors that uh, you know, dark gray colors of um, mining shafts. And uh, yesterday, for example, as we were coming into the venue, we were greeting by the um, uh, the marching band of. Coal miners. So, um, yes, um, coal is very much uh, present um, in in the talks. Was the band good? (laughs) Um, They were energizing. It was a a good music to hear as we were coming in, but um, uh, in sharp contrast with the conversations that we're having here. Um, Alden, I mentioned you've been going to UN climate conferences since 1990. Have you ever seen anything quite like this, such an in-your-face thing? Uh, well, actually, the last time we saw this was five years ago when Poland hosted the Conference of the Parties meeting in Warsaw, and it was held in conjunction with the World Coal Industry Conference right next door. So um, Poland does have a, a history of being a little confrontational on the coal issue, and they're trying to make it clear that they're not going to be pressured by anyone to uh, back down on this. But the interesting thing is that uh, this is increasingly unpopular in their own country, the the surveys, particularly of younger voters, show that people want to transition off of coal. They don't like the air pollution. They don't like uh, 
being laggards on, on climate action. And of course, renewable energy and energy efficiency are increasingly cost effective and it would make economic sense for Poland to rapidly transition out of coal. But that's not the position of the governing party. I was reading that this area of Poland, it's also seen its um, coal production cut in half like everywhere else in the last 30 years or so. It's it's uh, like a cut in half of its coal production. So they're not producing as much as they used to. And the, it's just not as competitive as, as other forms of energy. Well, Yes, uh, yeah. coal is um, increasingly uh, economically unviable, and uh, and and the the shutting down of plants is uh, it's not a competitive form of energy in Europe and in other places, and and the results are being uh, you know seen uh, in this region. And Alden, I also noticed that there's a lot of air pollution in that region, and in Poland has like 30 out of the 50. Uh, cities in Europe that are the most polluted. It it gets um, bad in the air. People aren't going to like that. Well, I noticed that actually when I first got off the plane arriving on Saturday in Katowice, uh, my my throat started to burn a little bit, and I could I could sort of sense the the coal pollution, and it's been kind of gray and smoggy. Uh, they say that when you get a, a severe temperature inversion here or atmospheric inversion, that it can trap the uh, the coal pollution, and it can be as bad as the air in New Delhi or Beijing, which is which is clearly life threatening. So, I would imagine at some point the the local citizens would say, "We want to clean up uh, this situation and and uh, either control the pollution, the conventional pollution off of coal, or shift off of coal entirely." But I should note that, despite the the figures you mentioned earlier about about coal use going down, it still employs somewhere around one hundred twenty five thousand people. Uh, in the country, a lot of them in this region, compare that with about 60 or 70,000 active miners in the United States, where our population is, I think, six times that of Poland. So it's it's still a significant part of uh, of their economy and their politics. Uh, and, and that's why they've been emphasizing this issue of just transition, of having to take care of workers and communities when you make a transition off of fossil fuels, which is something we totally agree with, as long as you don't use it as a smokescreen to slow down the transition uh, away from polluting fossil fuels. Well, it seems like so many countries right now are in a position where they, you know, want to advance the interests of fossil fuels. Obviously, the president of the United States, Australia, Brazil, all sorts of places are in pushback mode right now. Um, How are people taking that at the conference, Mariana? So I think that clearly, um, you know, what we're seeing is we are in a in a period of tremendous transition, and at a time where we have tremendous transition, you have the uh, pull of the old uh, systems, uh, the way that right now dominate uh, how we produce energy still, and the pull of the new, um, you know, the you know where the global economy is headed. Um, so yes, you have on the one hand the the you know you have conflicting signals coming into the system. You have some you know countries like the ones that you mentioned that you know at the level of the you know the national governments they are conveying you know the importance of fossil fuels, starting with the you know with the United States. But then you have um, another um, story very much alive and well and very strong in these talks as well, and that is the um, the the many um, uh, examples of, uh, you know, companies, uh, local governments, 
subnational governments and many others that um, are already investing um, in renewable energy that see that the economy of the future, that the history of growth um, and well-being in the 21st century will be written uh, with the low carbon transition in mind. Um, so you see that as much um, being uh, playing out, uh, you know, very strongly. And I think ultimately um, what we have in these talks are uh, a clear uh, you know, the message of, uh, you know, that, that we have seen from the IPCC report this year is a strong message that once again redoubles the sense of urgency of what is needed and, um, a, you know, a tale of, you know, two visions of the world. And, and um, both signals are signals that we're getting at the talks. I'm talking with Mariana Panuncio Feldman, Senior Director of International Climate Cooperation for the World Wildlife Fund, and Alden Meyer from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Both are at the UN Climate Conference, which is taking place this week at Katowice, Poland. And Alden, I wanted to know if do you want to weigh in on some of the pushback that some of the countries like the US, Australia, Brazil, Poland are are doing and how it's going over there? Yeah, I think it is a concern, uh, clearly uh, with President-elect Bolsonaro making uh, suggestions that he wants to reduce protection of deforestation in the Amazon. Uh, I've been talking to a number of both Brazilian negotiators here and Brazilian NGOs and business leaders. They are concerned about that and looking for help from uh, outside uh, Brazil to push back on that. I should also note that these moves are not politically popular in the country. In the United States, for example, a majority of Americans support U.S. climate leadership, including a majority of Republicans. Overwhelming majorities support uh, clean energy technologies, uh, solar, wind, fuel-efficient vehicles, electric vehicles, including vast majority of Trump voters. In Australia, I was just talking to an Australian scientist this afternoon. He said it's quite likely the current uh, prime minister of Australia, Scott Morrison, will lose the next national election in May, in part because of his adamant opposition to action on climate change. Australians get it. Uh, They're having drought. They're having severe heat. It's affecting their livestock, their way of life. And and they believe this problem is real. And so I think there's going to be an increasing political penalty to pay for leaders who don't take this issue seriously and and instead side with the the fossil fuel polluters. You know, in France right now, we've got a situation where um, President Macron wanted to have a what he called an environmental tax on diesel fuels, and the protests have been huge, and he has had to step back from that tax. Uh, is there a right way and a wrong way to go about uh, this kind of transition? Um, Mariana, do you have some thoughts about what's happening in France? <clears throat> so, I mean, what we know uh, that if we are going to uh, – uh, peak emissions in 2020 and do a rapid transition, uh, you know, uh, where we curb our emissions very rapidly. And in the next, the span of the next 30 years, we really build an economy that, um, you know, relies on low carbon technologies. Um, uh, What we need to do is not just technological fixes. This is as much of a technological transition as it is a a political and a social transition. Um, It is clear, not only in France, but in all countries around the world, that we need um, key systemic um, uh, policies that get at at promoting systems change. And putting a price on carbon is an important uh, piece of that equation. But you cannot do that divorced from the fact that uh, those kinds of policies – 
uh, are going to play out and they you need to look at the progressivity or the regressivity of the of the policy measure and how it is going to you know hit consumers and how it's going to hit the pocketbooks and i think that in the case of france um, there has been a bit of a putting the cart before the horse you know starting with this process without necessarily looking at the social implications of this um, and i think that the result is right now uh, what we're seeing which is rioting uh, you know because there isn't a full buy-in and and it, they hasn't necessarily been and, um, um, you know, um, an analysis of how this was going to um, affect different parts of society. So I think Alden mentioned before, um, I think uh, an issue that is critical in this whole process, and it's the issue of just transition. Alden brought it up in the context of how do we help workers transition out, you know, workers who are tied to the fossil fuel industry, how we help them transition. But I think that this question of equity and this question of how we put policies that uh, you know, help all of society move. I think that we're seeing the first tests of this being issues that we really need to grapple with, you know, and we're seeing that in France and elsewhere. Um, Alden, can you point to some places that are thinking just transition in a meaningful way? Are there places that are doing this right? Well, there are, but let me just comment on this carbon tax issue because I think it's important. There are carbon taxes in place in a growing number of uh, countries around the world, right close to home in British Columbia. They have a very uh, substantial carbon tax. The question is, what do you do with the revenue? And I haven't looked at the details of the French example, but just last week in Congress, you had a bipartisan carbon tax bill introduced by a number of Democrat and Republican House members that would return all of the revenue from the tax directly to consumers. And the analysis shows that if you do that, 70 or 80 percent of uh, citizens in the United States would come out ahead. In other words, their energy prices would go up, but they would get more back in their rebate checks every month than they would spend in higher energy prices. So if you put a, if you put a tax on, on people uh, that have to use cars or diesel fuel trucks and you don't give them any relief and they're already suffering from unemployment and lack of wage growth and, and, and general frustration about the economy, then you're going to get the kind of pushback that we're seeing in France. If you design the policy in a progressive way, as Mariana said, and, and use the, a, a substantial part or all of the revenues to cushion uh, the blow on people who are, who are uh, seeing their energy bills go up, then I think you have a, a policy that's much more socially and politically acceptable. So smart design is, is key in this view. Now, just transition, it's, it's a tricky issue. There's no country that has really done it perfectly right. Uh, I understand from colleagues at the AFL-CIO uh, unions in, in Washington that uh, Europe has done a better job on this when it comes, for example, to trade adjustment assistance uh, for, for manufacturing sector workers that have lost their jobs. Uh, the U.S. has trade adjustment programs, but they're not as well-funded. They're not as uh, lengthy and, and supportive of the full uh, range of services and transitions that displaced workers need. So we all have to learn from each other and do this better. The good news is I think that countries are starting to realize that, and they're going to be looking for uh, examples of solutions that work, and uh, we need to bring those home uh, to the United States, uh, whatever we can learn from anywhere else that's doing it right. I was listening last night to a conference, a town hall climate conference that was hosted by Bernie Sanders, and it was uh, on Facebook Live last night. It was at the Hart Senate office building, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking about uh, her 
group or coalition in the House that they're trying to get some uh, action on climate change. And she spoke very inspiringly and talked about uh, a just transition uh, repeatedly. And here is what she talked about when it comes to the effort for a new Green Deal. You know, when we think about where we were when the New Deal was established. We were a nation in depression, in Great Depression. We were a nation on the brink of war. We saw the rise of fascism creeping across in, in, in Europe. And no one would thought that a nation so poor, so scarce, and, and so in such dire straits as we were in that time could pursue such a bold economic agenda. But we chose to do it anyway. We had the courage to do it anyway. And that is what this moment demands of us right now. That's what we have to do. We have to, this is going to be the great society, the moonshot, the civil rights movement of our generation. That is the scale. That is the scale of the ambition that this movement is going to require. That's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speaking last night at a town hall on climate hosted by Bernie Sanders. I wonder if you could speak to that, Mariana, about the the. the bigness of the vision and hearing political leaders really talk like that is something I'm not used to in the United States, I'll tell you that. Uh, She's really kind of asking for a lot and rolling a lot in there. Um, What do you think of that? Um, I I think it's absolutely inspiring. And I think, um, uh, you know, I think that right now we are, um, you know, it's, it's, potentially the the and and we surely hope so it's the end of one era and we are ushering we're entering a, a new era and that era requires a vision it's a vision of a future that it's not only about us um preparing ourselves for the um the impacts from climate change that are going to hit the system, but it's what kind of future do we want? What kind of um, society do we want to build? And what we want is, um, you know, a society that not only harnesses the the potential of the of the you know the technologies that we now have in hand, but it's also a society that is founded on principles of of, of equity. It's 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 looking out for the well being of it, uh, you know of of uh, everyone. Um, and it's it's a, a, a society that recognizes that we're operating within planetary boundaries, um, and and that's the kind of conversation that we need to have. Um, and so I actually think that it's absolutely encouraging that we start having those bigger conversations because within those conversations is where we can have the space to think about opportunities. Is the space where we can we can say what kind of growth you know what kind of prosperity do we want? How do we we ensure that um, we ensure the well-being of everyone in the process. And then there is a place for the right technologies that can get us there and the right policies to get us there. So I think this is exactly the kind of conversations that, that we need to have. Um, Alden Meyer, you've been around a long time. A new Green Deal is a old term that is getting repackaged in a kind of purposeful <laughs> way here. What, what do you think about how that's uh, going down? Well, I think it has the potential to to galvanize uh, a lot of progressives in the United States around this agenda because it's not just dealing with uh, climate change; it's also dealing with economic stagnation, uh, wage uh, wages not going up, economic inequality, and and uh, could create a lot of jobs. Of course, it, I, I assume it's not going to be well received on the other side of the aisle or by the president. So this is not going to be something that's going to move through and pass. I think it's really 
designed more, as Mariana said, to start the conversation about the bold kind of action we need and inject that into the 2020 election discussions uh, so Americans can really, really talk about this. And if you look at the recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the world scientific community, they say we need transformational, bold, exponential strategies. We need to cut emissions nearly in half in 12 years globally from now and get to net zero emissions by mid-century. So the scale of what we're talking about is massive here. And, and I think putting these kind of bold visions on the table uh, is a good thing to do. Obviously, there's a lot of details to work out and a lot of politics to work out. Uh, but it's too late for incrementalism. That's just not going to get us where we need to go. Are you optimistic about a successful UN conference this week? Mariana? So out of these talks, we need two fundamental things. One is um, these are the most important talks since uh, the Paris Agreement was adopted. And um, uh, one of the things that we need out of the talks uh, during the next two weeks is clear rules that will operationalize the Paris Agreement. Um, I think that uh, what we are seeing and the second piece is a signal that um, governments are taking as, uh, you know, Alden was describing, um, you know, the latest science, uh, which is only reconfirming uh, the tremendous and uh, urgency of the transition um, that we need to undertake massively globally and that, um, you know, getting that signal that governments, um, you know, will, will take the information that they have gotten in the last three years, including from the IPCC report and conversations among them, and they will use that to go back um, uh, to do their homework and um, look for opportunities, domestic opportunities to enhance their targets. So these are the two things that we need to um, see coming out of the talks. I think, um, uh, you know, based on what um, Alden and, and I and many others are seeing, the negotiators are are working hard to um, figure out, um, you know, some of the key, um, you know, sticky issues around the operational rules. Uh, but there is, um, you know, there is, I would say, uh, a strong interest, um, you know, to to have have a rule book coming out of the talks. I think the big question is whether the key, um, you know, um, issues are going to be resolved and whether we're going to emerge with a strong rule book at the other end. And then on the question of, uh, you know, signal of um, countries really uh, governments taking, um, you know, taking uh, the information in, um, uh, you know, um, we um, we are we are here to advocate that um, everyone around the world uh, expects an answer from leaders, um, and um, you know we hope that um, leaders will give um, a positive uh, you know signal in these talks. Mariana Panuncio Feldman is with the World Wildlife Fund. Alden Meyer is with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks for joining us from Katowice, Poland, and talking about the UN Climate Conference. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with Matthew Cole, who covers national security for The Intercept, and we'll talk about accountability for the Navy SEAL units accused of war crimes. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In the last couple of months, U.S. Navy prosecutors have leveled some shocking charges at members of their elite Navy SEALs unit. In one instance, a member of a SEAL Team 6 is charged with murder for choking a Green Beret to death in Mali. 
And last month, a highly decorated Navy SEALs platoon leader was charged with shooting indiscriminately at civilians and killing a teenage ISIS fighter. With me is Matthew Cole. He covers national security for The Intercept, and he's been writing about the Navy SEALs for some time. Thanks for joining me, Matthew Cole. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I wonder if we could pull these instances apart a little bit. Um, Tell me a little more about the Navy SEALs uh, person who was charged with choking a Green Beret to death in Mali. What happened there? Sure. This uh, incident took place in the summer of 2017, and the uh, Navy has alleged that two members of SEAL Team 6 and two members of the Special Operations uh, Marine Unit um, who were assigned to Mali as part of a counterterrorism task force um, broke into the room of uh, Staff Sergeant Logan uh, Melgar, who was a uh, a Green Beret from uh, North Carolina, from the Third Third uh, Special Forces Group, um, and over what amounted to essentially a personal uh, animus and some accusations that um, Melgar had blown the whistle or uh, informed his superiors that the SEALs uh, were stealing cash out of a, an informant fund, um, it broke into his room while he was sleeping one night, uh, duct taped him, uh, tied him up, restrained him, and then uh, attacked him. It would appear from the charges that it wasn't premeditated, but um, the uh, the SEAL Team 6 operator who has who's been charged with choking him to death, uh, Anthony uh, Dedolf, um, was a MMA fighter before he was in SEAL Team 6, and he put him in some kind of uh, pretty vicious chokehold, uh, allegedly, and uh, choked him to death. And then afterward, I think, is, is the, the realizing that they might have killed him, um, all four have been charged um, with being involved in a, in a pretty awful cover-up um, that took uh, almost a year for the NCIS to unwrap. And uh, so they... Uh, Melgar was was murdered in June of 2017, and the charges against all four, uh, including murder and the cover-up, didn't come until last month. Um, So it took a while, but it appears that the uh, investigation, at least thus far, seems fairly thorough um, into what what may have transpired. Now, the other instance I mentioned at the top there was uh, where uh, this highly decorated Navy SEALs platoon leader was charged with, and his name's Edward Gallagher, he's 39, and he was charged with uh, shooting indiscriminately at civilians and killing a detained teenage ISIS fighter. And this was in in Mosul uh, not too long ago. Yeah, so one thing to clarify is is that you have uh, the larger group are the Navy SEALs, um, and they are a um, an assault force um, for the U.S. military. And then you have SEAL Team 6, which draws from the larger SEALs, but is more elite, um, more classified. They do uh, often refer to as the president's own because they don't operate unless the president has given uh, authority for them to go abroad somewhere and conduct a mission. Uh, Mr. Gallagher has been charged with, um, he's a decorated member of SEAL Team 7, which is based on the West Coast. Um, and he was uh, charged with um, killing a uh, injured ISIS uh, teenager uh, by stabbing him in the neck and in the sides, I believe, um, in addition to uh, reports in the NCIS charging documents that um, he shot indiscriminately at, at Iraqis, unarmed Iraqis, um, and that uh, he may have been trying to um, emulate Chris Kyle. 
Um, and I think actually that's a, a, a good segue into understanding that, that the SEALs, SEAL Team 6 in particular, has um, a real problem with accountability that's been growing um, since the wars, the post-9-11 wars began. Um, and one of the things that, that uh, I've spent a lot of time reporting on this um, for The Intercept, I'm working on a book about it now, is that the SEALs um, really didn't take into, the military didn't take into account the second and third order effects of 15, 16, 17 years of continuous exposure to continuous warfare. Um, and so what they, what the military will tell you is, we don't have a problem in the SEALs, these are one-off instances. And on, on one level, that's partially true, right? You can't um, judge from these two instances all SEALs and say that, you know, they've got this huge problem. But what they have ignored is a history, what they do have is a history of um, war crimes allegations, internal war crimes allegations that they've ignored, that they've covered up, uh, looked the other way. And what, um, you know, People inside both the SEAL Team 6 and the larger SEAL uh, community have said, of course, is that by ignoring those those accusations and the, the credible accusations um, and allegations over the years, what they've done is they've created a culture of silence. Um, and, you know, if you're from uh, – your listeners are from uh, Chicago, it's very similar to a um, – code of silence or the blue wall of silence with the police. Um, you never rat out on your teammate. I mean, in this case, in these two cases, actually, um, you have something that's um, remarkably different. And for Eddie Gallagher um, in SEAL Team 7, um, NCIS has his um, platoon mates and people under him reporting um, extensively that there were all of these problems that they were trying to report up to the chain of command that this guy was out of control. Um, and that's actually a, a, a good sign um, that they were doing the right thing and very unusual. I can't stress how unusual it is that you had SEALs um, willingly testifying to um, criminal investigators on their own. Uh, it just It's almost uh, unheard of. At, at SEAL Team 6, um, it is especially unheard of. And in the case, um, in this case that's coming uh, with the murder of um, the Special Forces uh, Sergeant Molly, the, the testimony does not appear uh, to be coming from one SEAL against another. Um, and in fact, what they're being charged with is the this extensive cover-up, which of course indicates the opposite, that they they got together, got a cover story, worked on it, um, lied to investigators. They've been charged uh, with lying to investigators. And that is more of, uh, that's a traditional, I don't want to say traditional, but it's the trajectory and the arc of what's occurred over the last uh, 20 years or so inside right. Field Team 6. I'm talking with Matthew Cole, who covers national security for The Intercept, and we're discussing accountability for Navy SEALs units. The market's like the truce between the U.S. and China. We're going to think through the next phase of negotiations between the U.S. and China in a few minutes. Stay with us. Um, you mentioned earlier on that um, people in the Navy SEALs say that, well, we didn't expect 15 or 16 years of ongoing warfare. And I noticed that um, with Edward Gallagher, the man who's accused of war crimes in Mosul, he's had eight or eight or nine deployments, uh, active duty deployments. He's a sniper and a medic. And um, it, it just sounds like a classic case of somebody who's um, gone off after after being in the field too long, practically. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, uh, generically, sure. And I don't know Gallagher's background. I thought that one of the things that was um, 
telling in the report, in the NCIS report, in the charging documents was that one of the charges he had was that he was taking steroids. Um, and that certainly um, is going to add to a pretty lethal dose of, you know, potent mix of, of aggression. I, the one thing that people have to remember about special operations, and when we talk about nine deployments, these are not your normal infantry deployments where you'll spend a year deployed somewhere. They do generally three to six months, usually less than six months. But, the, but what they do, the kind of operations that they do, are, are much more active. They get in helicopters, they get in, you know, uh, wheeled vehicles, and they, they go somewhere and attack. Um, and so they are involved in an enormous amount of close contact um, and close quarters battle, firing, you know, you get into situations where, depending on, on the kind of mission, they're doing, you know, uh, not quite hand-to-hand, but in close proximity. And so the 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 experience with violence in that scenario is much more visceral um, and, and very, very, um, uh, it, it's different than a infantry soldier who may experience violence by getting uh, hit by an IED while just driving somewhere. It, it has, they have different effects. Um, and the SEAL teams and special operations in general had, had, did not think about, they never, it's unprecedented in U.S. history for um, forces for our forces to go through this much um, repetitive exposure to war. And so when I, what I was referring to before is that they, they're thinking about the, the modeling that they had was how can we get our uh, SEALs to conduct operations and maintain, you know, optimal mental health, uh, physical health, you know, ab- obtain the objectives. But what they never really thought through was what happens when you do this cycle after cycle after cycle? What happens when you go through a deployment, then you go home, then you go back for a deployment, then you go home again and do it for nine years? And what what we are seeing quietly and what the SEALs, frankly, have been involved with in covering up and trying to hide is how um, vicious that cycle is and how, uh, you know, one of my sources always describes as, you know, he was a, a leader at SEAL Team 6, always just said, you know, we put our guys through a meat grinder. And and I, I thought that was a, you know, it's a rough image, but it's a, it's a fairly good one. It's a meat grinder. And after seven or eight cycles or deployments of this, um, it it may you may not ever get the same person back, and um, it's a it's a problem that the military has to confront, just as it has to confront larger issues of you know suicide and PTSD. Um, and the SEALs are starting to see suicides now, and that's something that we had never seen in in special operations because we assumed that they were a you know quote unquote tougher breed or a more elite. Uh, fighter, and the, the fact is, is that humans are humans, and when you when you when you do this much uh, fighting, it has consequences. Well, it seems like the um, Navy SEALs are getting a hand on some of the prosecution issues that they face, but they're not going to. They can't do anything about the war stuff. Right. Well, there's you know th- th- that's part of that's fair, right? The SEALs in the military don't make policy, and and they don't um, they don't sign off on. Uh, decide who, where they're going to fight. They're ordered to go, and they do. Um, and the, the real issue is how do they prepare and then how do they handle and treat their uh, operators when they come back and process this sort of back and forth. And, and you know, members of SEAL Team 6 in particular, a lot of them call this, um, you know, riding, a, uh, riding this bullet train, riding the train. When they're, when they're deployed, when they're in, they, they go on these constant cycles of Train, home training and deployment, but even when they're home, they're 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 doing training. They're not really home, um, and 
there at the most recent I've checked in, there have not there is not a um, great um, network or support system or or systematic uh, program that is meant to sort of treat um, that part of um, SEAL Team Six or SEALs' uh, lives and experiences, and it's something that members of SEAL Team Six who have gotten out have been public about and said, "Hey, you know, you've trained us how to climb mountains and uh, literally and and you know kill and capture and do all of these you know skydive like ninjas, but you never taught us how to deal with the emotional baggage of coming back home um, when we're not doing those things or when we step off that speeding train and go into civilian life." And I think we will continue to see more and more of these cases and incidents um, as more and more people who went through these wars were, you know, that experience sort of, uh, it's exponential, it compounds over time. And we're going to see it more and more. Matthew Cole writes about national security for The Intercept. You can read his series, The Crimes of SEAL Team 6, and other things on The Intercept website. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about uh, recent instances with the Navy SEALs. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the truce between the U.S. and China. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. At a dinner meeting on Saturday night, the U.S. and China made the decision to put on pause the new tariffs. The United States decided not to go through with the tariffs, and they decided to have talks in December. At first, the markets let out a sigh of relief over the trade truce, but now things are a little different. We're going to catch up with what's been happening with the U.S. and China and talk about a lot of the unknowns about the future of the negotiations with Ted Fishman, author of China, Inc. We were chatting about the high-stakes meeting between the U.S. and China last week. Good to talk with you again, Ted. Great to be here. Uh, This weekend shows how much can really happen when people decide nothing's going to happen. (laughs) Uh, You know, what happened in this dinner with between uh, President Xi of China and President Trump was supposedly uh, a cooling off where the negotiations about the about the trade war would go on for 90 days without any substantive change in our tariffs. We're going to keep these 10% tariffs on the $250 billion worth of goods we have on now, but we're not going to hike those up to 25%. And in the meantime, both countries are going to rally their forces and, and try and negotiate the best deal for each of them. Now, we've got the Dow down about 700 points today. After it went up yesterday because it was just kind of relieved uh, over the news, uh, what is the market saying there? I think above all, the market's saying there's a lot of uncertainty. And a lot of the uncertainty comes from the communications that are coming out of the U.S. administration and the silence from the China side. Um, When Trump left the meeting with Xi, the dinner meeting with Xi, he trumpeted the conversation as something that could lead to the best agreements of all time. That would be wonderful. Uh, that, that would be so wonderful. It would be great for everybody. And then when his um, minions who were with him, including Larry Kudlow, the economic advisor, Stephen Mnuchin, and others started talking about it, none of them seemed exactly on the same page. 
And one of the substantive things that was communicated was that the negotiator over these 90 days period would be switched from Mnuchin to uh, Robert Lighthizer, who is a very experienced hand in trade wars going back to the Reagan years and the fights with Japan through the Reagan and Bush years and is very, very tough, staunch um, uh, advocate for using U.S. power uh, to get the best trade deals we possibly can and in doing it in an unambiguous, open and public way. Now, it shouldn't be any surprise to anybody that the Trump team is divided on this and that there is all this confusion. That seems to be part of the the, the Trump administration's trade ethos. They, they, they just are – they're split. There's divisions. There's conversations and they're having them in public and all, all kinds of things go on. You know, and you have to wonder whether Trump sees virtue in all of this chaos because it keeps the Chinese off balance too. Um, but what Wall Street doesn't like is it doesn't like to be off balance. And Steve Mnuchin is a Wall Streeter. And his goals all along have been to benefit the companies that are doing lots of business in China and to benefit them in the nearer term. These are the GMs, the Caterpillars, Apples, Nike. Uh, we do about $250 billion of business in China with subsidiaries of U.S. companies. That's separate from our trade deficit with China. This is uh, revenue that's coming to U.S. companies that do business in China. And these are a threat in these negotiations. And when Mnuchin is the spokesman, and he was the negotiator up to now with the, in, the, in the trade war, uh, Wall Street sees an ally. But now that it's switching to Lighthizer, who has a much longer-term view uh, that sees China as an existential threat, those are his words, China's trade policies are an existential threat to the United States, not because they th only because they threaten our economy, which he believes that they do, but also also because of the technology advancements of China that come from stealing our technology put us at a geopolitical strategic disadvantage to China. Now, explain a little about what Lighthizer would like to see the Chinese do. He, uh, people talk about it as restructuring the Chinese economy and that, that, these, that, that these demands are um, kind of overwhelmingly large. Uh, is that true? How do you see it? Well, the, the, uh, to pick a a terrible but maybe perfect uh, metaphor here, it's a little bit like reading tea leaves. Um, you know, Lighthizer's approach can only be divined from his history. And he grew up in the era of these other trade disputes with Asian economic um, powers, particularly Japan. And he was really then long in favor of of – tariffs, um, executive orders and other – just to put, put, about, put in front of unfair trade practices any kind of mechanism we could have to slow down trade from other countries and extract concessions from them. Now, what kind of concessions we would get from the Chinese is unclear. If, if you go back to the WTO era where it was first getting ratified in 1994 and around the Bush election where Lighthizer was an advisor to then candidate Bush who was running for re-election. Um, he supported the WTO but he was for an extrajudicial panel made up of American judges that would rule again on trade disputes and give the United States 
some leverage that multinational, multinational organizations could not, multilateral organizations could not. So they might be looking for a way to expand some of the non-tariff mechanisms uh, that could block uh, trade from China too in order to get concessions. Is that an effective idea or it sounds kind of out of the box – but uh, what, is a, what is a good way to get concessions from China? I think a, one of the best ways to get concessions from China is to, while you're pressuring China, also pressure our companies that are doing business in China. You know, one thing uh, we talked about a long time ago on the show was what kind of mechanism could you have to retard the import into the United States and into other countries of goods that were made with technology that was stolen from other countries? Um, we have regimes that stop goods from coming in if they were made with child labor, that if they were made with uh, first-cut rainforest lumber. But we don't have anything that says, okay, your goods were made on machines that stole the patented technology of other companies and so on. You know, if if we could put in some kind of regimen that would really get most of the world's multinationals to fear that their goods would be stopped or slowed at the border, uh, then you might see the Chinese acting quite fast and quite willingly. Now, we've got uh, until December until these trade talks start. Um, it sounds like things aren't going to go the way you describe and we're not going to put pressure on U.S.'s businesses and Lighthizer is going to get in there and try to drive a hard bargain and that's that's why we're where we are today with the, with the Dow shooting down and people now pessimistic about the truce. Well, that's a good point because we are always thinking about what are we going to do to the Chinese and we never really consider fully what the Chinese might do to us. <laughs> um, they have a huge toolbox. You know, the world supply chains run through China. Our companies are doing lots of business in China, both selling there and getting parts for the goods they sell everywhere else. In, in a lot of ways, China has a much bigger range of weapons in this trade war than we do. They might not be uh, more powerful ultimately than the ones we have, but they have a very wide range of things they can play. And I think this is part of the uncertainty in the market. And I was surprised um, at how quickly the trade war turned into um, everything else war with China because uh, when this all started, the Trump administration was like, this is about trade and it's not about North Korea and it's not about the South China Sea and it's not about Taiwan. And now it's about all those things. Every one of the, everything we do with China seems clouded by, by this, this uh, tariffs and trade war. You know, this is what happens when you start demonizing a place is that all of the scary issues start getting conflated. But in here, there is some merit in one corner of that way of thinking. And it's the issues around the kind of advanced technology that China is trying desperately to develop, particularly semiconductor technology. China has devoted in its current plan $175 billion to making it the leader in global semiconductor industry with the most advanced technology. That's just about 5% or 7% shy of their total defense budget. 
So there, imagine the United States spending the sum of its defense budget just to get ahead in a single technology. That's what the Chinese are doing. And that technology relates to all of the advanced strategic weaponry China could ever develop against us. And I think when you look at the divide in the U.S. administration, there are those who are focusing on the trade deficit and trade issues and the fortunes of American companies. And then there are those who say, look, the companies are one issue, but they are actually the ones who have given away the store up to now. We have to act above those in our long term strategic interest. And that's why these trade issues, intellectual property issues, cyber espionage issues, and all those conflate together. Um, it's, it sounds like um, very threatening on a, this is the national security element of it. That, that um, I don't know, does Lighthizer talk in that, that manner? Very forthrightly. He absolutely does. And this – when he says in official documents from the US Trade Representative's Office that China is an existential threat to the United States, it's because uh, we have companies that are partner in all of this tech transfer that's going on. We have other countries uh, acting to transfer technology to China, uh, Japan, France, Germany, Taiwan. They all play a role in this and the US's role in the next 90 days will be to get them to be part of our consensus on this issue and there are good signs that they will be. So we might have this kind of encircling of China that has its own dangers on these issues but it will increase our bargaining power. When you say encircling, uh, when you're, you're talking about on, – On the issues only, not, li not literally with battleships. But you know, to, to, to say to China that you know, you're not going to play one country against the other. If, if you are thwarted in getting technology from the US in the past, you might have gotten it from South Korea, Japan, Taiwan or Israel. Um, the US's uh, goal right now will be to make sure that there is a single front against this and, and to stop China from getting – um, pricing power, technology monopolizing power, um, uh, and supply power um, on technologies that we all need in order to keep the geopolitical balance. Ted Fishman is the author of China Inc., amongst other books. We've been chatting about the U.S. and China and their trade truce and why the markets are not enjoying it today. Uh, thanks very much, Ted, for joining us, and we'll have to keep our eye on what's going on here throughout the end of the year with the U.S. and China. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Jerome. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to hear from Tatsu Aoki, the famous Japanese-American drummer from here, who has a show coming up at the Museum of Contemporary Art. We'll do some taiko drumming in the studios tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia-Blanco for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.